Amen, indeed. And, you know, we've been reminded in song, uh, those words that capture the, the truth that we are recipients of a love that really we can't fully understand. But this we know, that by God's, by the wounds, by Christ's wounds, we are healed. And sometimes that's all we can understand. Uh, but that, that is the whole crux of it, is, is in many ways that's all we need to know. Uh, that through Christ, through his sacrifice, uh, we are healed. And <clears throat> what a tremendous and, and um, liberating understanding that is to realise that, that it is not through our works, it is not through what we do, but it is the fact that we are being blessed, uh, overwhelmed uh, by, by God's love, and he has done all. Uh, and he said, <clears throat> if you believe. So I trust that's your position today, that you are indeed able to uh, identify with that and to enter into the joy of salvation. Uh, salvation uh, by, <clears throat> by faith. Uh, but of course, it's through the grace of God. Uh, so may that uh, influence our... Uh, our heart and our minds today. We're of course excited to have the children with us because there is no children's ministry. Um, I see a few of them escaped out the back, but uh, anyway, we're going to carry on. And um, <clears throat> the children's ministry, of course, are having a uh, well-deserved break for, um, for at least a few more weeks. But this morning, of course, uh, we're going to just continue on in the book of Malachi. Uh, Jake uh, began that journey. Uh, we've gone through chapter, chapter 1, <clears throat> and we've uh, touched on a few other things since then. Uh, but now let's pick up on chapter 2 of, of uh, the book of Malachi. And just a reminder or, or a refresher, we, we're reminded that Malachi, of course, lived and worked in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we've been through all of that part of the the Old Testament books, and, and as we have uh, touched on those uh, <clears throat> different books, though, that is the time and the time frame where, where uh, Malachi lived and, and ministered. Uh, we're reminded how a remnant of the Jews returned back from Babylon. Most of them stayed in Babylon. Some came back after their captivity. Uh, there was the, they came back under the, the ministries of, uh, of Haggai and Zechariah. They rebuilt the temple. Uh, some years or 60 odd years later Ezra came to re-establish the nation and it was something like 14 years after that that Nehemiah came and rebuilt the wall and so in Malachi's time the Jews had been back in the land for somewhere around 100 or so years the captivity had, had in many ways cured them of idolatry and that was one of their biggest issues when they came out of the land of Egypt they struggled with idolatry from there on but it seemed after the captivity, that never seemed to be a problem like it had been before. However, that wasn't the end of their problems because they were still prone to neglect the things of God, to neglect the house of God. Uh, the, the priests had become neglectful, they'd become lax, they'd become degenerate. The people had reverted to their old habits of intermarrying with, with the idolatrous nations around them. And the spiritual life of the nation had become one of kind of empty repetition. We all can be a bit like that in life, can't we? Who remembers driving here this morning? Who remembers every gear change you made? Well, you don't now because it's mostly automatic, but... Who remembers, you know, precisely every move you made? Now, if you go back to when you first started driving, you probably would remember. Oh, yeah, I grunted the gears coming out of there, then I was over there, and, and man, I'm here, thankfully. Uh, but, but as time goes on, you become, you, you, you click into autopilot, don't you? We can do that also in our life of faith. And that's what had happened really here. The, 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 the nation had, had become... You know, it was sort of around with just empty repetition that, that sort of uh, defined uh, their religious activity and, and their commitment to God. It had become a place of sort of half-hearted religious uh, activity with no real heart or relationship with God. Now the theme of Malachi really is, but has been defined as formalism 
rebuked because that's the state that they'd got into. And so instead of a, a kind of a real and dynamic relationship with God, which had been the case not that many years prior, there were times when they, as we've been reminded, as we've gone through those books of recent times, that, that, that there was real commitment to God as that nation came back together. Remember, these are the ones who'd come out of Babylon. Uh, you know, many of them had a nice little urna going on in Babylon and they stayed behind. But those who had a heart for God and to re-establish once back in the land, they had moved and, and it often came at great cost to themselves. Uh, many of their families stayed behind, but those who, who came had a commitment uh, to God and there was tremendous times of spiritual um, life and, and, and revival. But as we get to Malachi and things have been happening for, uh, for a while back in the land, it will become mechanical. They were going through the motions, as it were. And so Malachi comes along with a stern message. As we uh, let's look at the first few verses of chapter 2, where uh, he speaks here <clears throat> and says the message, of course, and now, O priests, this commandment is for you if you will not hear and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts. I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and the one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. And so, of course, the mention here of Levi, one of the sons of Jacob and Leah, became, uh, of course, that, that head of that priestly tribe. The Levites had the responsibility of tending uh, to the spiritual needs of the nation. Anyone involved in the temple service would have to be a Levite. The priests were Levites, but they were also from the line of Aaron. Now, if the priests will not hear and repent, God's promise is, is here a, a curse on their blessings. And it can be a reference to, to the blessings either brought by the people, by the priests, to the priests by the people, or the priestly blessings they gave to the people. Because why? You did not take it to heart, is the message. And so this sin goes all the way back to, to sort of hollow formalism. It's a, re, a religion of surface emotions and outward signs, but not of the heart. It's been fascinating uh, travelling around and, and, and going to uh, different um, churches. And I'm thinking particularly of high church and, and perhaps like the Anglican church or something similar to that where everything is so formal. And for some people, you know, that doesn't mean to say they can't have a dynamic relationship with God in that environment. Some people need the, the formal stained glass windows and the, and, and the candles and, and incense burning in a, a, a great building to, 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 to sort of be a part of. And, and that's, that's fine, isn't it? But it can be replaced and, and where all of this structure um, and such like becomes uh, greater than the God you're there to worship. And I'm, I sort of think a little bit about that when in these verses here this speaks of sort of um, re religious activity. There is in the heart of man, isn't there, a desire to worship something. God's desire is that we worship him. And man so often falls short of, of, of the worship of God and said, worshipping things about God. Or even worshipping the worship of God. Man is easily distracted and the, the view of God can be replaced by religious activity. And this was the situation Malachi was facing and he was addressing. And so some harsh words, speaking here, spread refuse on their faces. I mean, sacrificed animals still had 
refuse. We might call it excrement in them. And the, the message here is, is, is pretty graphic. Hey, we're going to spread this even on your faces. Rub it in their noses so that you will have to be taken outside the sanctuary because you've become unclean. The motive, of course, that my covenant with Levi may continue. God's discipline against these uh, priests. Uh, the Lord's view was that this would warn the priests back to a proper respect of him and his covenant. And speaking about Levi, the, the, the theme continues in verse 5. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And so God promised Levi that his descendants would be scattered in Israel. This was turned into a tremendous blessing when Levi, of course, was designated as the priestly tribe and the priests were sprinkled throughout the land. And so God uses Levi here as an example for the priests in the days of Malachi. He's an example of reverence. He says here, he feared me. He was reverent before me. He's an example of knowing God's word. The law of truth was in his mouth. He's an example of godly character. He walked with me in peace and equity. He's an example in that he was preserving and promoting God's word. Uh, the mention there should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth. And so the priest had a special responsibility to both hold and to spread the word of God. God's word was given to the priests for, for, notice, life and peace. That's something we need to remember. The words of God are for life and peace. Through the word of, of God we do find that. Uh, true eternal life is found in Christ as, as revealed in Scripture. And, and the only way of true peace is to make peace with God. And so because the priests had to hold and spread God's word, they had to do it with knowledge so that people could seek the law from his mouth. Leaders should be knowledgeable messengers of God's word, is, is the thrust here. It's also relevant instruction for priests, for ministers, for pastors today. To declare the word of God in its entirety. Declaring the word of God, expounding on the word of God, bringing the word of God before the congregation should be at the heart of what any minister of any church should be doing. Paul touches on that in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15, a well-known verse, of course, where he refers to the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's reference to the truth of God as declared to man. That's where we should find uh, the upholding of God's word, of, of what God has revealed, that God's truth. What the Bible says, or what does the Bible say, should always be the, the sort of undergirding principle uh, because we need to know what Scripture says. Not so interested in what someone else says. What does Scripture say? Uh, and, and the church should be a place where anyone can come to and hear the word of God expounded. It should be a foundation uh, and, and, and uh, a bulwark, you could say, of God's word. In many cases, that hasn't happened, and, and it's not a new thing. It was, that's why it was being addressed here. But, verse 8, we hear this. Malachi continues on. He's getting this message from God to declare, but you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I have also made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways and have shown partiality in the law. 
Now, the priest should have held the word of God in knowledge, reverence, and obedience. But instead, what happened? They departed from the way. They caused many to stumble at the law. The priests of Malachi's day fell so far short of God's ideal for them. And, and the people could see this, and, and as the scripture says, it held them in contempt. Now, as, the, as, as we look at that and, and think about it, it's not, not, not hard to apply that in, in today's world, uh, where there's all manner of information can be delivered from many pulpits up and down the land and around the world. And many will look from the outside and say, hey, hang on, you know, shouldn't at least the word of God be upheld? Um, and so we can see this is not a new problem. It's been going on for a long time as, as the move away from upholding God's word is experienced. Now, God continues on to rebuke the priests in this way, verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers, and so what's all this about? Uh, have we not one father? This does not teach the idea of the universal fatherhood of God, uh, which is the doctrine that all are saved, or that that God is everyone's father in the same way. It's a simple assertion that because we are all made in the image of God, we respect and deal honourably with all. Malachi will apply this specifically to marriage, where he says, "Why do we deal treacherously with one another?" The idea is of betrayal. Verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this being awake and aware yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And so here we have the, the Lord's holy institution. What's this about? This tells us exactly how God feels about marriage. It's holy to him. It's an institution to him. God loves and has designed marriage. When we sin against marriage or our, our marriage vows, we sin against something that is holy and precious to God. He has set apart marriage for a special meaning, special purpose in life and in the life of his people. Marriage is God's idea, not man's idea. He formed and established the first marriage as a pattern for, for everyone after. We go back to, of course, Genesis 2. Because it's an institution, we're not allowed to really define marriage any way that pleases us. Of course, that is happening in the world today. Marriage is sort of defined by just about anyone uh, can, to mean anything. God has established it, so we conform to what he has established. And so we, went, we sin against our marriage and our vows, we sin against something that God also loves. God loves marriage for what it displays about his relationship with us. He loves marriage for the good it does in society. God loves marriage for the way it meets the needs of men and women and children. Most of all, God loves marriage as a tool for, for conforming us into the image of his son. Those of us who are married know how that God uses marriage to refine us. God used many things to refine us, but marriage is one. Uh, and we're reminded, of course, of that relationship that, is, that, that, that we experience as, we might say, uh, the bride, the bride of Christ. When we're reminded of, of, of how a husband should relate to his wife as, as Christ loves the church and gave himself for the church. And so we see the principles of marriage are all in, in Scripture because God designed it. It's fascinating, isn't it, that man has got involved to mess all that up, 
to mess up the things of God. And that's pretty much the way uh, the world, of course, goes. It will attack the things that are of greatest value. The things which, which represent God in the world are under attack. They always have been. And as the days go on, that will be increasingly so. The institution of marriage is one of them. He says here he has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now the first treachery and abomination God addresses is the intermarrying between the, the people of God and their ungodly neighbours. The dangers of an ungodly intermarriage are well documented in the Old and the New Testaments. Israel married women from Moab and, and brought the curse of God upon them back in Numbers 25. Solomon married many, many foreign women. We, we know all about that. And they took his heart away from God. He recognised that. Ahab married Jezebel, a foreign woman who led Israel into uh, new depths of depravity. Paul speaks about believers and unbelievers not being joined together. And so God promised to punish the priests who married foreign pagan wives and thought that it would, be, it would not affect them. We read these interesting words, awake and aware. It's a phrase that uh, translates something along the lines of, of um, master and scholar, tempter and tempted, witness and, and advocate. Even nomads and settlers. The Hebrew idiom, idiom is just another way of saying everyone. God's command against mixed marriages in Israel, and let's be very clear on this, especially in today's world, has nothing to do with race. This is not racial. It has to do with faith. We're all the same before God. Whatever race, it's about faith. There is even a foreign wife in the genealogy of Jesus. Who was Ruth? A Moabite. She married a Jewish guy named Boaz, because she forsook Moab's God for the Lord. It's got nothing to do with race. It's got to do with faith. And, and of course, it was Solomon who recognised that. And he, he recognised that his foreign wives had led his heart away from God. It's not because they're of a different race, because they're of a different faith. And so we need to be clear on that. In today's world where it just seems that even any little offence, the racial word comes up. God created the races. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> praise the Lord. Verse 13, and this is the second thing that you do. So here we come, you know, here's number, number two. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. You say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion, your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a, rem a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, and the Lord of hosts... Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And so the neglected and divorced wives of the priests, uh, it, it, you know, it is believed, came and wept. And their husbands then offered sacrifice to God on the same altar. And it offended God. The priest sins by, by forsaking the wife that they married in their youth. So they get together, they get married when they're young. As they get older, what was happening? The old priests were, were divorcing their wives and marrying younger ones. They kept their wives till they had passed their youth and put them away that they might have young ones in their place. And this was an offence to God, as you could imagine. The Bible continually comes back to God's goal of, and plan for marriage. Essentially, to God's plan for marriage is, is the essential oneness between husband and wife. One important reason for this oneness is to establish a proper environment uh, for life and for, for, for offspring. <clears throat> There's no doubt that God hates divorce, as mentioned here. 
It, destro it destroys what he loves, which is marriage in the, in, in the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. We can say that God hates divorce for a number of reasons. It certainly breaks that solemn vow. It's harmful. Uh, it also illustrates apostasy. And, and the idea is that, that the apostate, you know, moving off, and, and in this case, divorcing and, and marrying another, uh, moving away from that which uh, God had declared. There's no doubt that God allows divorce, though, in particular circumstances. But divorce is never commanded. God's heart is always for repentance, for forgiveness, reconciliation. Uh, we've sinned against God worse than any spouse could ever sin against us. Does God divorce us? Surely he has every right to. Yet we are fallen. We suffer from hardness of heart. As Jesus described in, in Matthew, you know, God... Gives, he gives permission for divorce in, in various circumstances, uh, the two being essentially adultery and abandonment. Significantly, misery, unhappiness, poverty, incompatibilities are, are never given as grounds for divorce. Oh, I'm sort of unhappy, so I'm going to you know, ditch that one and find another. Try and find that in the Bible. Where there is danger of abuse or, 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 or such separation may be in order in, in, in accordance with, with Corinthians. But of course the, the, the concept is for always for reconciliation. Part of the marriage ceremony in, in Bible times involved the husband covering his wife with his garment. It's a symbol of the protection that he brought over her. But now their garments were covered with violence. That's the, the reference here. And when a wife is forsaken or mistreated, the man covers his own garments with violence. And it's because the husband and the wife are one. He cannot mistreat his wife without bringing misery and destruction to himself. That was Paul's point in Ephesians 5. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Uh, simply put, when you love your wife, you benefit also. Perhaps you could put it in the negative side of things. When you neglect your wife, you neglect yourself, and it will come back to hurt you. We all know what it's like to neglect something. Like a noise in your car. <laughs> or, you know, leak in the roof. You neglect it long enough and it gets worse and worse. Even more so regarding your wife because she is part of you. Therefore, he says, take heed of your, to your spirit. And so this phrase is repeated twice because it's obviously important. The, re the reason why the priests dealt treacherously against their hearts, sorry, against their wife, is that they did not take heed to their spirit. They allowed their hearts to become hard to become critical, to become embittered against the woman they were supposed to regard as, as their special God-given companion in oneness. Now it's important to realise that we can change our feelings. We can change our feelings toward our spouse. If we do not feel loving or connected or caring about them, that can be changed if we will take heed to our spirit, if we will allow God to work in our hearts. I can think uh, of, of you know, occasions where that indeed has happened and, and there's been tremendous um, changes come about uh, where both are willing to allow God to move in their heart. But when we get to verse 17, we, we come across a fourth question. Uh, <clears throat> Now, Jake covered the first three questions in chapter 1. Those questions so far, there's a number of them still yet to come. There's questions in this book of Malachi. First, the one that, that we saw last, in the last chapter, how has God demonstrated his love to Israel? And that was detailed in the beginning of the, of the book. The second question is, how have we despised the Lord? And, and Jake spoke about that. The third question, how have we defiled his ministry, they said. And so here we have the fourth question. 
Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? The fourth question essentially is, where is the God of justice in this unjust world? The people of God in Malachi's day were depressed, they were discouraged because it seemed like the wicked prospered and it had, they were doing better than the godly. And of course this filled them with tremendous doubt and unbelief and they grumbled that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Hey, if we just do bad then obviously they're blessed by God so you know, they, they, they were kind of completely messed up in their view. Where is the God of justice? When they compared themselves with others, they thought it was unjust of God to bless others and not them. Nevertheless, their question shows that they don't understand what the God of justice really would do or give to them. But you think of the accusation here. You have wearied the Lord <coughs> with your words. Well, that's a terrible thing, isn't it? To be accused of wearying the Lord with our words. This kind of ignorant, unbelieving talk from God's people is wearisome to God. Man, that's heavy duty, isn't it? It shows how much his people resist him, resist his truth, and resist his work. It's a bit like the person who can only complain. My heart goes out to those who work in the complaints department of various businesses. I mean, how on earth do they survive? You know, or do they rotate around? And, and you know, but if you're only hearing from people who complain, it's like, man, what a sad world. You know, what do they do to kind of get their head straight again? Uh, but some people are just in that world. All they can think of is complaining. And that is wearisome. And here the message is, of course, uh, there is a wearisome aspect to God uh, for those who really are coming against God with this, this question. I believe it does show <clears throat> the, their lack of understanding of the person, the character, and the nature of God. It's probably a question we've all asked. I've asked it. I can think back to days, you know, and, and I think where, uh, as, a, as a kid, and mum and dad haven't done what I wanted them to do, or more likely, I've done what they didn't want me to do, so I'm being disciplined. And so I think, well, mum and dad are big bad meanies and, and got it out for me. And, and that's it, you know, that's it, they hate me, they just don't want me, and all blah, 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 on, around, around we go. As time goes on, and you get older, and maybe a little bit wiser, a little bit more experienced, you start to realise, well, they did love me. They do love me. Some of the reason why the, you know, I wasn't too happy was not their problem. They were dealing with the problem, which was me. And as time goes on, we become a bit more mature, mature and we, we realise that we see a little bit bigger picture. And I do feel as followers of Christ, the same thing happens in some way. As we get a little bit older, we start or more experienced in, in walking uh, with God. And of course, that doesn't always mean how long we've walked. It's mean how has God worked in our lives and, and what he, has he done in our lives and how we've experienced God in our lives. And we can start to realise, well, God does love me. Uh, we can look back a little bit like as we were children and recognise that, yes, my, my father was loving me at that time. And, and, and we can apply a similar concept to God as we become a bit more aware of who he is, of his character and his nature. Why? Those who shake their fist at God and disregard anything about God, why do they have such a blessed life, we might say? Why those who follow hard after God and yet their lives either end in tragedy or a lot of drama and strife? Where is the justice in that? And that's sort of where these people are at, and you can kind of understand that question. Many have stumbled on that question. God 
does he promise a life without struggle and trial? Now, many would say yes. Especially those influenced by different aspects of, of teaching, the, the word of faith crowd would be certainly one of them. They would interpret that any bad thing that happens is a lack of faith and must not happen to you. Uh, a believer should live a long, healthy and wealthy life and we're only blessings out of the order of the day and they just pour upon us. Jesus said to his disciples, and in that context I believe the message is for every Christian, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Yeah, that's what we want. Praise the Lord. In the world you will have tribulation. Oh, I don't want to hear that, thanks. Maybe if I just have enough faith, we won't have that experience of tribulation and trials and difficulties. But then Jesus went on to say, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We do have peace in Christ. We don't necessarily have that in the world. Now, a person may live a tremendously blessed life and, and you know, die in his sleep as an old man and never have any dramas. That's, that's great, praise the Lord, but there's no guarantee. Not only is there a promise of, of tribulation, but the Bible records examples uh, <clears throat> of what that looks like. And, of course, um, Hebrews is one example of, or one place where those are recorded. The famous chapter of Hebrews 11 We read this. <clears throat> and what more shall I say? For the time would, would, uh, <clears throat> would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their death, they're dead, raised to life again. So yeah, that's what it's about, isn't it? You know, these victorious in all areas of life and so on. But the story doesn't stop there. It continues on in verse 35. Others. <laughs> Others were tortured. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings, scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Scripture records what happened to some. History records what happened to some Christians. Read Fox's book of Christian martyrs. Read the reports of Christians being persecuted, put to death today. We live in a dream world if we believe salvation is some kind of life enhancement policy and everything's going to be fantastic. We can be sure of our eternal security, but we live in a fallen world. Many have turn, turned away in the times of Jesus when they realised there were no sort of perks guaranteed. And so perhaps the more relevant question might be, how do we handle trials and tribulations? Because they're going to come. Surely one example of a, is, is Job. He had a few issues, didn't he? Uh, we always like to go back to him. When his wife, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Hey, just curse God and die, man. You know, she was pretty hacked off, wasn't she? And he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. And so you can, you can kind of hear his wife can understand that. But there was something about Job and his relationship with God. He, he recognised, hey, we've had good, we also have bad. The first thing, of course, that, that strikes me there is perspective. The reality is bad stuff happens. We live in a fallen world of death and destruction and decay. Now, if you're sitting around the campfire, your clothes are probably going to smell of smoke. 
It's a bit like if you're alive in this world, things will happen that you don't want. But also keep in perspective the other side, where Job said, shall we accept good from God? Isn't it interesting that whenever you're having a bad day, everything is bad? Oh man, what's wrong? Oh, everything. Everything's wrong today. You know, the world hates me. Everything's turning to custard. Uh, you know, it's just, everything is wrong. And you sort of start to get to the bottom of it and something did go wrong. But not everything. But we've all been there, don't we? It feels like everything is going wrong. There's no hope. And it's a bit like Job's wife, we'll just curse God and die, you know. You see, perspective is lost and it's forgotten what God has done that is good. What good has God brought into your life? Oh, nothing, it's all bad, you know, and that's kind of, it over, overwhelms everything else. I've always been fascinated, if you take a... <coughs> Uh, pot of black paint and you've got another pot of white paint so oh, I just want to lighten up the black a bit so you put a bit of white in and it keeps stirring nothing much happens you put a more and more nothing much happens you need a you know can you ever get enough white paint to turn a bucket of black paint white you probably can but you're going to need sort of truckloads of it but if you take that pot of white paint Put one drop of black in it, it instantly affects it. You need very little black, don't you? You see, we can let a drop of black paint taint our lives. And suddenly everything's bad. Suddenly God's against us. And I believe that's what was the, one of the problems that was happening in the days of Malachi. In the days of these people, they were wearying God with this whole thing. Oh, why follow after God, you know? We might as well just go and do this stuff. And many of them were. Even the priests were, were, were ditching their wives and going against what God has declared. They were going against what they had even observed. It was only they'd been there a hundred years. They would have been experienced some tremendous times of, of revival. But because things were perhaps become a bit stagnant, become a bit stale, because they'd fall, sort of fallen into this sort of dead orthodoxy of repetition of religious activity, their heart was far from God. Job had a deep understanding of the character of God and was able to maintain peace of heart by continuing to trust him. What tremendous strength that is to just trust God. Well, I don't understand what's going on. God doesn't often call us to understand stuff. Uh, he calls us to trust him. I just want to finish on this, um, this great psalm, Psalm 73. Psalm 73 was uh, a psalm written by <clears throat> Asaph. Asaph was a uh, worship leader for David. And like many of the songs that uh, we sing today, many of them are written through experience. And, and, and a person putting into words how where God has worked in their lives or how this has panned out. And as we look at Psalm 73, I believe it sort of touches on really what the heart that we're, we're looking at here in, in Malachi and where the people were at and, and hopefully where they moved on to. You know, we can be at that place, but where, where are we moving to? We can be at the place where they were weary in God, but we don't want to stay there. We, we want to ho hopefully respond to, to God's shaking us a bit and realising, hey, we, this is not where we need to be. We need to get ourselves back on track. And sometimes we need someone to come along beside us and say, hey, you know, there is hope. Uh, it, it's not all black. There is hope ahead. And so Psalm 73, look, look at uh, these verses here. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as a pure in heart. That's a statement. Surely God is good. God's good to everyone with a pure heart. Excellent, great. Verse 2, but as for me, <laughs> and this is often the case, 
Well, God's good to that guy or that girl or that family because they're doing everything right. But for me, for me, for me, it's all bad. And here is Asaph. But for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Surely this kind of captures the, what was going on in Malachi's day. I could see everyone just ditching God and getting on with their life. Great. Hey, there's Joe down the road. He's ditched his wife and got a, a new model. And life's going right for him, isn't it? Man, maybe I'll do the same thing. You can see how it, well, that sort of carries on. Uh, we're just doing our religious stuff, but now he's got a, a new wife and, and she's not you know, too good at cooking, but I guess she'll get there. But you know, whatever the case might be, people sort of uh, work through all of that and, and we, can, we can apply that to what's going on in the heart. Verse 4, For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, they nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their hearts could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly. Concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who were always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. And washed my hands in innocence. You can see, you can feel the pain in his heart, can't you? you know, <coughs> and I think this you know, reflects the heart of the people. They could, they could see all the, the, the benefits of not following God. Surely, <laughs> I've cleansed my heart in vain. I've, I've washed my hands in, in innocence. What's the point? All day long I've been plagued and, ch and chastened every morning. And, and so what's the point of this? You know, I'm following after God, but all this is happening. <clears throat> if I had said I will speak, speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, and this is where we run to strife, when we try to understand. <clears throat> I had a laptop that um, blew its um, fuse a while back and had to get another one, and I took it to the guy who knows all about them, and he looked at it, and he gave me all this information about why it had dropped its lunch. And I said, I don't understand. And, and, and I have no idea what you're talking about. If you want to talk about you know, a V8 engine or a, you know, a, a, a plough, but you're talking about stuff that I have no idea. He says, well, well, you need a new one. Well, now I understand that. <laughs> and that's all I needed to understand. I don't know or am interested in the technical part of it. I just want one that works. And he said, oh, well, this is what you've got to do. And see, that's often our problem, isn't it? We try to understand the things that we're not wired to understand. Now, that illustration about the computers is, is a bit of a, a lame one because there's plenty of people who understand everything about computers. But no one, no one understands everything about God. Otherwise, you would be God. When I thought to understand why all this drama was going on, it was too painful to me, is what Asaph says. Until what? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. And so going into the sanctuary of God, it's a reference that it probably meant in the day going into, <coughs> into church, we might say. Into that place of, of, of not being in a physical location, but when I laid my heart before God, when I sought God's wisdom. When I sought the big picture, then I understood their end. He didn't understand everything. But he understood enough. And as it went on, surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to destruction or desolation. And in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. And here's where we need to get to. We can understand this. 
that indeed God does hold us by his right hand. Verse 24, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. So God guides us in the difficult aspects of life and afterwards into God's presence. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Asaph has recognised that, man, <laughs> you know, I need to get my view back onto God. My flesh and my heart fail. Yeah, <laughs> that's life, isn't it? Our flesh, our heart fail. We, we, we have physical lim limitations, obviously. Ultimately, these bodies aren't designed to go on. They're terrestrial. We have a celestial body coming. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So our strength comes from God. Our strength today comes from God in these temporary bodies. But that strength will remain eternally as well. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. <clears throat> you have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. Isn't that good? Isn't that simple? It is good for me to draw near to, you, to God. How do you do that? Firstly, it takes a moment of time to draw near to God. It, it costs you time. Lord, I just want to wait upon you. I want to be in that place, Lord, where you can minister to me. Open your, your word to my heart and my heart to your word. I have put my trust in you. Sorry, I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And so there are the words of Asaph, the songwriter, as he he struggled, I think, with the same issue that we all struggle with. And so today as we consider what's been before us, may we not be guilty or weary in God as the Israelites were, but instead may we draw closer to him with open hearts, willing for him to, to change our thinking. You see, the, the Israelites had become very hard of heart. They had fallen into religious activity, but their hearts were so hard. May that not be our case. May we be aware that that can be our case. And may our hearts remain open. And may we find that place of rest in him today, we pray. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have reminded us through your word just the, the issues we, we can have as, as just humans seeking to follow you in life and how our hearts can be hard, we, our hearts can become as hard as the Israelites were. We can fall into uh, ritual and formalism. Lord, I pray that today you would move amongst us, that you would remind each one of us to come into that place of, of open fellowship with you, of, of meaningful and dynamic relationship, that we would not be wearying to you, Lord, but that indeed we would bow before you, that we would acknowledge your, your grace and mercy upon us, that you would move your spirit upon our hearts. And Lord, that we would not be drawn aside into being distracted by the activities even in under religion but Lord our focus would be upon you as we're reminded in the psalm Lord that the psalmist came to that point of recognizing that you are our greatest desire you are the great one uh, the holy one of Israel the creator of heaven and earth the creator of life the sustainer of life both here and, and eternal and so, Lord, we ask now as we conclude in worship, Lord, speak. May our hearts and our ears be open to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen.